So Wonderful. John Mark's second time in Australia. Yeah, I love your country. It's amazing. We like to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe uh, I've just seen like cool venues and really nice people and <laughs> drink good coffee and sit on the beach, but I love it. It's really wonderful. Perhaps second best coffee to Portland, but we, we're pretty proud of it. I'm just going to be more mature than you in that moment right there, <laughs> you know. Good to hear. No. Did you grow up in Portland? Tell us about it. Um, Bay Area, so Silicon okay. Valley, and moved right. to Portland when I was 13. Mm -hmm. So been there quite a while. And what's your family you know, like, and do they do they live still in the Silicon Valley area? Um, extended family kind yeah. of thing? No, I'm Silicon Valley. Nobody really can afford to live there except Mark Zuckerberg anymore. So <laughs> most of them have moved away. Um, most of my family is either in LA or in Portland still. Yeah. Do everyone, does everyone in Portland wear black, or is this just something are, the, are there chosen. other options are there <laughs> depends what time of year it is and how depressed we all are you know i like to say that six months of the year portland is unbeatable like if you come between may and early october it's basically the coolest city on the planet the rest of the year it's very beatable <laughs> the palette is pretty yes the it's rest very of so if you don't know where portland is so just think california San Francisco, just go north to the cold and the dark and the rain and the really good coffee and lots of depressed people, and that's <laughs> where I live. Which was meaningful. You know, we are talking about mental health earlier, but yeah. I, John Which Mark actually opens, part of my you story. open one of your yeah. books, yeah, sharing yeah. a little of that story um, and the connections with faith and as you pastor people. But yeah. um, and then I move here and everybody's tan and uh, happy, and I think, <laughs> wow, this is, this is people's life now. But, yeah, I love that story of kind of pastoring someone, a good friend, it sounded like, over a coffee. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, maybe you could share with us a bit about both how you came to faith and then what it's like to be a pastor in yeah. Portland. Yeah, great. So my um, dad, well, I grew up the son of a pastor. My dad's first-generation follower of Jesus, so is my mom. Silicon Valley area, he kind of came to faith at the, in the 70s at the end of the Jesus movement. Is that language you would use over here for 60s, 70s? Good, yeah. In California, he wasn't of the hippie variety, but he played in a rock band and was very far from Jesus and came to faith, ended up on staff at one of the first kind of well-known megachurches in America, which is a key part of my story. I've grown up in the megachurch movement really my whole life until very recently. And uh, my parents are amazing, first generation, so they were new to a lot of it, but they really put family way over church and anything else like that. So real heritage of faith and um, a real gift in being able to grow up kind of behind the scenes in church leadership. Like I have vivid memories of sitting in the back of elders meetings when I was seven and playing with G.I. Joe guys or whatever, you know, as they would discuss all sorts of things. And at the time, it was just boring. But um, in hindsight, I see the hand of God and a lot of that. And I actually said I would never do what my dad did, ever. Not out of rebellion, um, by the grace of God and following Jesus since I was a kid, but um, a lack of call until I was quite a bit older, you know. How did you s end up sensing that call? Um, yeah, I mean, long story short, I was on a retreat when I was, gosh, I don't know, 16, 17 years old, had an encounter with God, basically felt the spirit say that thing you said you would never do is what I would like you to do. But, you know, a call to, to ministry is such a broad word. Pastoring is such a broad and even you could argue a semi-unbiblical word um, that I think it starts out really vague and ambiguous. I didn't even know what that meant. And for years and years and years, and then I thought I knew what that meant. And then, you know, you begin to do certain things and you come alive to some things and you feel this like, you know, gifting and even the sense of the spirit of God in you when you do other things and people around you say, man, there was something in that moment. 
Um, and then you do other things, and you just die a little bit inside, and the people around you just say, you know, have you thought about doing something else? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think for me, it's been very much a, a journey. I don't um, kind of have the, the more common personality makeup of a pastor, and uh, so that's been very challenging for me over the years, and so I spent a lot of years faking it um, and uh, just trying to be like, Woo, I don't have any woo, but I just tried to fake it, you know, <laughs> on Strength Finders and trying to be an extrovert. Anybody read Suzanne Cain's Quiet? She has some great insights about Western culture and the extroverted ideal and how introversion is looked down on. And so you have to act like you're an extrovert, even if you're an introvert. And um, so there's a lot of things, and there's the whole alpha male leadership thing that we buy into in America a lot, which is not me. So, um, yeah, it was a number of years. I think it wasn't really until a few years ago in my early 30s that I felt, oh, I think I actually have, like, a handle on who God made me to be and what he's made me to do. And it was really hard because I had to basically um, die to a lot of ambition in my life. Um, but that's really healthy on the flip mm -hmm. side of it. It felt like death at the beginning, and now mm -hmm. it feels like freedom. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just feel like whenever there's a stereotype of an illusion of what success looks like, especially when it's been corrupted by Western culture, whatever that looks like, whether it's the celebrityism or the alpha leadership thing or whatever it is, um, that's rarely doing any good to anybody. So true. Yeah. So there's a, there's a great, I think that Rumi quote comes to mind. I don't normally quote Islamic poets, but he has that one <laughs> great, don't, don't read anything to this, in, to this theologically, but he has that one great line about, he has more than one, but there's one line I love about if you are here with us unfaithfully, you're doing great damage. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about just being faithful to who God made you to be. And just there's a humility. Like you have to just die to, oh, I, you know, um, Pete Scazzaro's work has been real helpful for me. And he has all this great stuff about, he has this line that you basically never hear at any leadership seminar ever, anywhere. He has this line, you find God's will for your life and your limitations. And, you know, there's so much that is said in our world about reaching your potential, which is wonderful, and I'm all for it. But you have to have the second side of that conversation, which is accepting your limitations. And if all you ever hear is reach your potential, reach your potential, especially if you come from middle class and above and a majority culture, it's really toxic. And so you have to have that. That has to go hand in hand, I think, with accepting your limitations. So that's been a lot of my kind of leadership journey is, continuing to demote myself. I'm about to do it again. <laughs> I've done it twice already. And just accepting my limitations and just realizing, wow, like, how do I just come to peace with who I am and not live into this stereotype or idealist vision of who I wish I was? Um, but just like, and it's so, it was so, I was riding down in the car with Josh over here and Chris, right? I just met you a few hours ago. And they're just classic, you know, not just not in any way, like extroverted, all woo. I'm, I'm guessing you're woo on Strength Finders. And there's, just energy in the car, you know, and chatting for constant, just the nonstop barrage. And I always have that thought when I'm with people like that, I wish I had that personality. And then that used to drive me to a really unhealthy place. And now I feel like, well, I can just sit here and pray while they talk the whole way. <laughs> <laughs> and it feels wonderful to be free. So anyway, keep going. That's just gold, isn't it? We used to have an office administrator um, and she had to move overseas, but we basically wanted to make her a T-shirt when she left. It was Woo Inc. Because <laughs> she was just Woo all over. But oh, man. It was not only a joy to get to work with someone who was just Woo Inc., but it also meant that for me, I'm just not Woo, woo yeah. Inc. It's not me. Um, but to learn that, you often have to learn it in community. It yes. takes some pain. It takes some time. And it sounds like for you, that's been you know, a wonderful journey. Of yeah, long, slow, 
yeah, mm-hmm. reading and formation in community. Failure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that you went to the positive, though, reading. But yeah. <laughs> that but too. <laughs> but it helps you deal with the failure, right? Yeah, absolutely. Has there been, you know, in the past five years, you've done a lot of reading, a lot of thinking. Have there been kind of standout things that you felt like God, you know, you've met God in those moments, maybe of failure or in learning from others? Are there some standout moments that you could share with us? Yeah. I mean, in my story, the last five years have been kind of, Marked by a few things. Some of the cultural commentary stuff with Mark has been really transformative for me, but more so has been um, just discovering the world of spiritual formation. So, you know, there's lots of backstory there, but I hit this spot, you know, five years ago, a little bit longer than that now, where I just hit this wall. Um, So, my dad and I, who I grew up in that mega church, we co planted a church together 15 years plus ago. And it grew really fast and ended up as lead pastor of that church. And it was quite large. And that's when I started to have some failures. I mean, the church was doing well by the mega church metrics, but I was a mess. And I, mental health was an issue for me. Always has been. Mental illness runs in my family. And so I just hit this spot where, you know, through kind of college, my early 20s, I felt like this growth curve into Christ-likeness, where year over year, I felt more like Jesus than I was the year before. But then I hit this spot a few years into the church plant. I don't know how much of it was the exhaustion of a church plant and how much of it was age, but I just got stuck. And so year over year, I felt less like Christ than the year before, meaning just more stressed out and unhealthy and unwell. And frankly, if, if if Jesus' primary metrics for Christ-likeness, at least the Gospel of John and mine, is love, joy, and peace, I was not a loving, joyful, and peaceful person. I might have been strong in the things of God or you know, some other thing, but I was not loving and joyful and peaceful, and I was not more so year over year. If anything, I was less. And I hit the spot where you know, it hit me, man, I'm stuck. I feel like I hit this plateau, and it's not that I don't want to change. I really did want to change and it wasn't that I wasn't trying to change I was trying very hard it was that I did not know how I just felt stuck and I did not I literally did not know what to do about I kept reading my Bible and praying more which is I kind of read the Bible pray more and go to church a lot that was kind of the model of change that was passed down to me by my church tradition all of which are beautiful things but not nearly enough um, for what I was up against And then I had this, like, existential crisis. We planted this church, and it went really well at first. It grew crazy fast, and you kind of live off the the adrenaline high, and it's easy to equate numbers with kingdom success. And so got into that, and then, you know, you get in. We were seven or eight years in at that point, and we were kind of, we had no more room to grow or anything. And then all of a sudden, you start to see your church a little bit more clearly once the romanticism is gone and you're a bit more tired. And um, it hit me, wow, my church is full of people like me, which was really depressing. Because um, I kind of thought, I just hope that I'm killing myself for them to flourish. You know, Jesus line, take up your cross and follow me. Somehow, I was never like, nobody, none of my mentors actually sat me down and said this to me, but I interpreted that to mean sacrifice your emotional health on the altar of church planting, which I'm pretty sure is not what Jesus meant <laughs> at all. And um, at all, if anything, I think he meant sacrifice your ambition, your agenda, your desire to be well-known, your desire for growth, whatever the American metrics are or the Australian metrics, whatever it is. You're not quite as messed up as we are, but I'm sure you're messed up too, <laughs> you know? 
And, um, and, you know, it hit me. I remember Pete Scazzaro. Has anybody read Emotionally Healthy Church or Emotionally Healthy Spirituality? Yeah, one of the, I mean, top ten or top three kind of books in my life. And he's just played an amazing role in our life and our staff and our church. And I read his book, you know, when I was 23 years old. We had the year we planted. It was on, like, Rob Bell's recommended reading list. And think Rob Bell 16 years ago when he was orthodox and he was like a pastor still and he wasn't on Oprah it was just a different moment I'm like okay it's on his recommended reading I have to read it and I remember I read it and I thought it was amazing but I like put the book away and it literally was in one ear out the other over the next decade I did every single thing in the book he says do not do this and then I came back to it I think this would have been five years ago now and um, reread it again after failure on my sabbatical and just rocked me and he has that line at the beginning of the book, as the leaders go, so goes the church. And I remember I read that, and it was like, dang, you know, which is not, that should not be the first thing you think when you read that. And, um, you know, he has, just makes the point that a church rarely rises above the maturity of its highest level of leaders. And that was really, that was disconcerting for me. I remember I would read Paul's, you know, four times, I think, maybe it's three, I think it's four Times in the New Testament, Paul has an iteration of that line, follow me as I follow Christ. And I remember reading that thinking, even for Paul, that sounds a little arrogant, you know? <laughs> like, and I could never say that. And then I hit me like, if I can't say that, I have no business leading a church. If I can't say, and it's not be perfect like I'm perfect. Jesus said that one. It's, you know... <laughs> follow after apprentice under Jesus, copy the details of Jesus' life as I copy the details of Jesus' life. Do it kind of like this, and you'll move forward on the journey. I can't say that. Something is way off. So this is a long answer to your question. So um, all that to say, that led me to demote myself. We were part of this multi-site megachurch, went on sabbatical, took one of the sites, not took, but one of the sites, and we became an autonomous church with all great relationships with everybody. And um, just radically kind of changed my life and cut my hours way back. Sabbath became a core discipline for me. Got into therapy, which has been with a Christian therapist, one of the, if not the most life-changing experiences of my life. And um, began uh, all sorts of things, emotional health, and, be, and began to live in community. And one of our elders moved in across the street. So it was this very large kind of began to move into the spirit, the things of the Holy Spirit. So it was a very large kind of life change about five, six years ago. And as part of that, it just sent me on this quest of reading research, you know, um, around spiritual formation and just began to ask the question, how is it that people, myself included, change? And what I realized was most people either don't have a working theory of change. And I, don't, I would never say I know what the answer is, but at least I have a theory now. Um, I mean, if you just ask people, all right, so if, if the bar is set at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, if the Sermon on the Mount, that's the goal, right? And read the Sermon on the Mount. People write it off as it's idealistic. Have you read it? Jesus just assumes, it's a high bar, but he just assumes that men lust after women and you have contempt for people that are not like you and you do spiritual disciplines for all the wrong reasons and you're anxious and you want more money than you need and you judge other people. So when Martin Luther or whoever just writes it off as someone like, have you read it? It's very high bar, but very down to earth, very honest. And if we set that as like, okay, that's a, that's a gist, or pick 1 Corinthians 13 or whatever example of you know, maturity, you set the bar there, I was not even close. Even if you just take love, joy, and peace, I was not even close. And most of the people in my church were not close. And then you just ask, if you were to ask 
a pastor or a church, how do you become like that? Like, actually tell me, how do you become more loving, more joyful, more peaceful? And then just clear through any BS of Christianese. Like when people are like, I just trust in God and ride on the wings of whatever. Be like, <laughs> okay, that's great. I'm all for trusting God. What does that mean? And just drill down, drill down. And you find most people can't get past platitudes. Most people start to use kind of reformational anti-effort language, like it's just all God, which is, which is not biblical, not psychological, it's not how people change. And it hit me, wow, I just had never really asked the question of how I change. I just assumed an answer that, because uh, I don't come from, I'm now kind of in it, but don't come from the charismatic, my like gross oversimplification is that most non-charismatic Protestants would ans- answer that question by saying, study the Bible. Like, how do you change? You just study the Bible, you know the Bible. The problem is I know all sorts of people that know the Bible really well and are not loving and joyful and peaceful, are not self-aware of their shadow side, are not aware of the way that a father wound or mother womb is just wreaking havoc across their leadership, don't know what it looks like to live not out of ambition but out of abiding, and they know Romans wicked good, you know? (laughs) And that's not a slam on Romans. Like, I... I started out as a Bible teacher. I love, 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 love. Um, That's not a slam on the Bible. Um, But I had to learn the hard way that information does not equal transformation alone, you know. And the Bible is key, mental maps, the whole other conversation. But, and then I think charismatics mostly just think you sing for a long time and you get a zap from heaven. (laughs) And and these are gross oversimplifications. And I, I say that not in a condescending way. But I think that in both traditions, whether you're in a Sydney Anglican, reformed, intelligent, Bible-preaching thing, or Pentecostal, sing for hours every where or anywhere in between, I think my experience has been in much of the Protestant church, what you hear is a lot of stories of quick, wings, quick wins early on in people's life with Jesus. Like, those first five years, people grow like a weed, which is exactly what you'd expect. You'd get people radically new mental maps, and you know, a whole new community of faith and a different value system and a truth center, you would expect radical life change. But normally you stop hearing those stories after about three to five years. And once you get down, you know, it's gonna be a Red Robert Mulholland Invitation to a Journey, one of the best, probably the best like accessible, easy to read, all in one place spiritual formation book from the 90s. And he has a great chapter on purgation, which is ancient language for dealing with your crap. And um, he has four layers of sin. And it's and this is mostly ancient church language. It's gross sins, which are like you know the sinless in the New Testament, fornication and murder and theft and stuff. Then it's um, what does he call it? It's uh, like unconscious sins or something. It's like basically sins that are socially acceptable. So that would be gossip or drinking too much or most of Netflix, um, where culture at large <laughs> is like that's great, but it's clearly not Jesus' way. And then his third level is, I think he calls that unconscious sins, which are patterns of thinking, feeling, sins of omission, not commission, where it's just what you don't do, motivation, where you do the right thing, preach a sermon and plant a church, but for the wrong reason. And then his fourth layer is what he calls trust structures, um, which is like you know Thomas Keating's language of emotional programs for happiness. It's w- things that we look to, often good things, like, church planting or leadership or writing a book or preaching or whatever that don't go by the name of Jesus that we put our trust in for our happiness. My, I say that to say my experience had been in the church milieu I was in, it did great with those first two levels. And once it hit level three and level four, it just got, it just got stuck. 
And it's like all these people hit this plateau. And again, it was not that people were unwilling, it's that people were unable. So that has been a very long answer to a very short question for which I apologize. Um, but that I think has been the revolutionary for me. The last five years coming up with, and mine might be off, but coming up with a working theory of change, which then we realized, oh wow, the way we do church is not facilitated for formation. It's not facilitated to grow people into mature Christ-likeness. And, um, and the very architecture of our church is not set up for that. I don't mean physical architecture, but the, the way our church is formed. So that's really been the last kind of five years of my life is just going on my own journey of formation, getting unstuck, and I have very far to go, but I feel, again, more Christ-like year over year. And I just really have come to believe that, you know, Dallas Willard had that great line, the most important thing God gets out of your life and that you get out of your life is the person you become in, dis in discipleship to Jesus. And man, do I believe that more now than ever before, you know? Wow. I hope people have been taking notes of the books that John Mark has been mentioning because I'm going to come ask you for the list afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so keep noting them down. But just as as he was talking about that idea of, you know, church structure and practice doesn't actually reflect some of the things that you've been learning and reading about. Yeah. The thing I've found fascinating is um, not just your cultural analysis kind of at a structural level that it is pretty evident in this cultural moment, but also your analysis of what we're really like as people. And you, we've just really witnessed that of him speaking to something that's kind of true about how we feel and these things that we're not we don't feel like we can actually admit yeah. that there's more going on. Yes. Um, and but actually looking at your church website, what I was really struck by was the resources and the practical guides that were there that were teaching a craft of this is what it looks like to be following Jesus. And yeah. it seemed to just r make so much more sense of what's become a really key idea for you of apprenticing Jesus. Mm -hmm. There was I was really struck by these practical guides where they're talking just about solitude and the practices of solitude. Um, and I've got to admit, I was kind of speed reading some sections on <laughs> solitude <laughs> and you know, preparing okay. to ask questions. We have a practice questions. on hurry coming up. Got, so a, you got, a little, got a little to go on that one. <laughs> but just he, yeah, I felt like, ah, no, you've seen me reading this. You, you get what my heart is like. You know that I speed through things. God knows this. I actually need to come and spend time mm. with God on this. Wow. Is that... Is that a kind of practical expression of this idea of apprenticing Jesus? Perhaps you could just kind of talk us through what what does it what does it mean, and how how long did it take you to come to terms with what it might mean to be following yeah. Jesus in this way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, apprenticeship to Jesus is just I'm just obsessed with all things Dallas Willard, and um, honestly, Dallas Willard is outside of the Bible is the most influential thinker in my life, and. Um, I like to say that N.T. Wright taught me how to read the Bible and Dallas Willard taught me how to follow Jesus, um, but uh, for which I'm grateful. But, um, you know, a number of scholars argue that mathetes in Greek, or, um, which is the word that we translate disciple, is better translated apprentice. And disciple is, one, it's not a word, at least in America, that's used outside of the church. And two, what that means is... quite is different from Australia. We do people we use that outside yeah. of the church? Well, it's the idea of being an apprentice. You're learning a craft. Yeah, that, but I mean disciple. Is oh, disciple. Would, would a, would a oh, secular no, no, no. Sydneyan... Sydneyan? No. 
Sydneyan? <laughs> whatever. Sydneyonian. I don't know. Whatever. Um, Australian, would they say disciple outside of a church context? Definitely not. No. Yeah. So what we find is that people import into that word whatever preconceived meaning they have for it. For example, most people in America use disciple as a verb. It's never used as a verb anywhere in the New Testament. It's a noun. So, um, like, people ask you all, ask me all the time, who are you discipling? And I just chuckle, like, not in a condescending way, but, like, <laughs> like just put, like, a synonym in there. Like, would you say, who are you Christianing? <laughs> You're like, wait, are you, you mean, are there Christians in my life? You mean, who am I mentoring? Or, and what most people mean by discipleship is either mentorship or leadership development, which is the kind of Jesus had 12 disciples, and people get confused between the apostles. He had way more than 12 disciples. Um, and think that what he did with the 12 was what discipleship is. So you're like, you take 12 people and you mentor them. Before. I'm like, but I'm, I'm not Jesus. Wait a minute, Harry. If any, if, at best, I'm Peter, you know. And he, <laughs> and he was not somebody you necessarily want to apprentice under, um, at least until later in life. Or people mean like kind of in-depth Bible study. Those are the three. People mostly talk about discipleship in America. Again, I have no clue here. And ask a question like, who are you discipling? What they normally mean is either one-on-one mentorship or sometimes one-on-three, leadership development, or in-depth Bible study. And I don't think any, those are all great things. We call that mentorship, leadership development, and in-depth Bible study. We don't call any of that discipleship. So just um, to flip the language to apprentice, which a number of scholars argue is a better English translation, and nobody knows exactly what I mean by that, which is so helpful um, because you get to define it a little bit. So our little framework is to apprentice under Jesus is to organize your life around three goals, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. And we do that together in community. And I figure pretty much any church, any church website in the planet that you go to, you basically see four categories of church. Uh, we would say be with Jesus. You could call that communion, abiding, intimacy with God, life with God, prayer, contemplative, whatever. You could call that, that's all the same language, the same idea, become like Jesus. You could call that spiritual formation. Old school, you'd call it sanctification. You could just call it maturity. You could call it love, whatever you want do what he did. You could call that mission. You could call that evangelism, justice. You could call that all sorts of things. And then everybody, we do that together in community, family, whatever, church, whatever you want to call that. Basically, whatever language, you know, inward, upward, outward, or communion, communitas, whatever that one is, you know what I mean? It's all different language for basically these three or four aspects of life with Jesus. So that's just our framework of be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did or do what he would do if he were you. Um, And all that to to practice. Um, So a key thing for us, like one of our main messages, one of my life messages, church messages, is this idea of the way of Jesus, which is language in the Gospels and not language in the modern church. And um, that the way of Jesus is exactly that. It's a way of life. And so I grew up in a church tradition where the word Christian was used, not the word disciple. And, you know, um, which is interesting because that's not a word used by Jesus at all. And um, in Jesus' category, there's the crowds and there's the disciples. And, like, Jesus is so black and white, which is so not, like, Portland. Everything's about, like, find your truth and, you know what I mean, be gray. And who are, like, Jesus is so black and white, which is one of the things that makes him so compelling as a teacher, is he makes you fit into one of two categories. And you're like, there are 9,000 categories. And he's like, well, I have two. Which one are you in? You know, crowds or disciples, which is so good. But anyway, we just talk about how, the way of Jesus is more than just a set of ideas, what we'd often call theology or the Bible, and it's more than just 
a list of do's and don'ts, what we call ethics or sanctification. It's a way of life, you know? Eugene Peterson has that great line, it's the truth of Jesus wedded to the, it's the way of Jesus wedded to the truth of Jesus that brings about the life of Jesus. And I grew up where so much was said about truth, which I am so grateful for, and I have not left that behind, I hope, but little to nothing was said about way. And if you think about it, the Gospels are biographies. You know, anybody read biographies? I'm not a huge biography reader, but anybody? You have to be pretty committed to, like, read 900 pages about Steve Jobs, who had borderline personality <laughs> disorder, you know? Um, but if you think about a biography, why do you read about, whether it's Spurgeon or Elon Musk, or who, why do you read a biography? Most of us read the biography of somebody we either really want to be like or really don't want to be like. Um, and in order to copy the details of their life, to hopefully achieve some kind of a like similar result. So pastors read pastors' biographies, you know what I mean? Because we, how did Dallas Willard become Dallas Willard? How did Spurgeon become Spurgeon or whoever your hero is, you know? And then we'll read these stories and we'll often read, oh, wow, they did this or they did that or, oh, Willard was all about an anti-hurry thing and, oh, I need to slow my life down because we want to become like them. Tragically, almost nobody reads the four Gospels of Jesus that way. And, you know, that's where Jesus never once commands anything that we would call a spiritual discipline other than prayer. He just does all of this stuff and then says, come follow me. And that's so interesting to me. You're never commanded to read your Bible. You're not commanded to begin your day in quiet. You're not commanded to go to church for that matter. But Jesus does all of this stuff and then just says, come, apprentice under me. But when all we talk about is theology and ethics and we don't talk about lifestyle, you end up with people that believe the right things, want to live the right way, but don't know how. So for us, um, practices, which are just our name for spiritual disciplines, um, and a little bit broader sometimes, are just a key part of our working theory of how you change as you create space to sit in the truth and the spirit of God. We believe that we're transformed by the spirit and the truth of God through, on our part, practice and community. So our part is to show up and to do it in community. God's part is truth, to rewire our reality and our mind, and spirit, presence of the spirit, and his love is transforming love. So practices, whether it's on solitude or Sabbath or living in community or fasting, are just ways that we show up to God and allow him to do the work of transformation. And um, what we found is due to post-Christian stuff, due to the breakdown in the family in America and widespread divorce, is that the spiritual disciplines traditionally have been taught by parents and have been caught rather than taught from stage. So old school pastors could just stand up and exegete Romans and they just assume that people, you know, really if you work with older Christians, you can pretty much assume they read their Bible in the morning. The Bible's not a stumbling block to faith like it is for most millennials. It's an aid to faith. They know how to pray. They come to church most Sundays. They most likely tithe, like they maybe fast once in a while. Like you can just make this set of assumptions. With kind of 40 and under, I literally make the exact opposite set of assumptions. People literally oh. don't know how to sit alone with God or much less with themselves. So we're finding we're having to teach our church what I'm teaching my nine-year-olds right now. And that's not demeaning because this is a city. You have to make money to live in our city. You have to basically have to be educated. But our educational system teaches people to be smart and to kill it, kill it at work, and it does not teach them how to do relationships. It does not teach them how to have Sabbath. It has no meaning and purpose other than make money and have pleasure. And so there's, and the widespread breakdown of the family, it's unbelievable how many successful, upwardly mobile people in our church have massive father wounds, mother wounds, don't even know how to pray. 
these are smart people. So we just kind of have to go back to the beginning. And so like right now we're teaching Sabbath. Like, and it literally starts from somebody who doesn't even know what the word means to hopefully, and we, every three months basically we take on a practice and we teach on it for four to eight weeks. And then we go back to exegeting Matthew. And then we write up usually about seven or eight weeks of practice where communities come together. And those are my, right now my home community is exploring Sabbath. And a couple of us have been doing it for 10 years and it's changed our life. And there's three or four people in it that have never done it before and just had their first Sabbath for the first time two weeks ago. And we're just all helping each other. And how do you do it retired? And how do you do it you know, with little kids? And how do you do it when you're an introvert? And how do you do it when, you know, all that stuff? And um, so again, way too long of an answer. That's fantastic. Question. And I think for a room of pastors, actually getting practical like that of hearing how do you teach Sabbath is such a big thing. And, you know, you've done it through sharing the ideas in books like Garden City of this is God's purpose for us is not just to work, but to rest and yeah. what that looks like. You do it through very practical guides that the church makes available. Yeah. What are some of the other things that you think is necessary for a church to help people respond to the way of Jesus and being apprenticed unto him? Yeah, I mean, practices for sure. Community is the other big one, um, which is a, that's a, that's another word that people kind of import whatever they mean into that. So, you know, what we mean is kind of 10 to 20 people who do life together around a table and live by each other. Um, so not that that's a right answer. Just I think in any kind of a large church, and by large church I don't mean a mega church, I mean anything over really 150 people, you have to create alternative venues for communities. Everybody knows this, but eating together. I mean, our religion, for lack of a better word, started around a table, and there's no reason to leave that, you know? So I think for us, community is big. The, the role of the Holy Spirit is just really huge. And um, so for us, yeah, I mean, practice, community, Holy Spirit, all around the truth of God. Those are our kind of four components. And of course, obviously, through suffering and time and stuff like that. But yeah, practice for us has been the big new one. Community and practice. I came out of a mega church context where community was like meeting people for coffee before and after services, not doing life with people around a table where you know and you are known. And then I came out of a pretty standard Protestant tradition where there was no role for practice. Um, you know, Willard has his Vim paradigm, if you're familiar with that. Renovation of the Heart is a really another just unbelievably good book that I would highly recommend. Someone is writing this down, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, vision, intention, means, and so um, is how we change. So vision, let's just take a non-spiritual example. Let's say it's the new year. I guess it's different here because it's summer here, but it's our new year. It's your new year, too, and you want to lose 10 pounds. I don't know what that is in kilograms. Um, but uh, you want to lose some weight or you want to get in shape or whatever it is. You First, you need a vision of, like, oh, I could be a different kind of person. I could be 10 pounds skinnier or whatever or I could run a half marathon or whatever it is, then you need an intention. You have to actually make a moment of intention in your own heart where you decide, I'm going to go do this. But you're still not done. You have to have means, which whatever that is. You have to be like, here's the diet, here's the gym membership, here's the workout partner, here's the regimen, you know, five days a week or whatever it is. And if you don't have means, you're dead in the water. And so what I've found is a lot of churches are high on vision and high on creating moments of intention and then literally no means. So if you look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, which has radically transformed my preaching, has totally been transformed by this paradigm. I try to actually follow that in my, in my teachings 
of vision and then intention and then means. So most, I just give this big old vision of this is what life could be. And I try to curate a moment of intention. And then I try to end, like most of my sermons don't end with like heart touching stories anymore. They end with like, here are two practical things you can do this week to become a less anxious person or whatever, very practical. So if you look at Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he has that paradigm in all the 14 mini teachings that make up the Sermon on the Mount. He'll say like, you know, he'll take anger and I'll lay out of this vision of what would it look like to become a person who does not live by contempt. And then you have to decide if you want to live that way or not. But then he'll end with like, so if your neighbor has sinned against you, go and, you know, like take care of your thing and then come back here. It's this like uber practical thing, like so like down to earth, like don't let stop not before you come to church. Go, go talk to them, figure it out, you know, and it's kind of funny, actually, you know. In the story, like if you're in Jerusalem and you like run back to Galilee, it's just a two-day jaunt. You know, like go back, you know, leave your gift there at the altar, go on a two-day trip. You know, it's funny, but it's practical. And I just realized, man, so many of my sermons ended with this like lofty, emotional kind of like, because it's all about trying hard. And that was really my model of like know the right things in your head and then just try to do it. And like you can't, you can't just go try to not be anxious and, and like become a non-anxious person. You know, that's not what Paul does in Philippians. He doesn't say just like, don't be anxious, everybody. He has two paragraphs that basically practices of how you do it, which is thousands of years before neuroplasticity, modern psychology, which is all confirmed basically every single thing that he says right there. Um, and so, anyway, I'm going off again. Sorry. It's fascinating. Isn't <laughs> it? It's practical wisdom. It's, yeah. it's a different rule book. A, a, great, a great talk would end with an aspirational kind of sentiment. Yeah. And again, that there's a place for yeah, that, you know, right. but... But it's actually getting to those practices and looking at well, if we're apprenticing under Jesus, what are the what's the craft that we've got to learn? Yeah. And it might be resources of ways that you can learn to proclaim the gospel to people. Yep. With Alpha, it might be hospitality. Hospitality. Yep. I loved even just on the church website the reminder of like share meals and drinks with people who don't know Jesus. That was yeah. <laughs> I kind of had this like oh yeah, <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Um, you've also been known to you know, teach from the front about the importance of doing justice and, hmm. you know, speaking to issues that are a little uncomfortable uh, and in that way following Jesus' hmm. uh, way in that as well, um, tackling things like you know, corruption, religious institutions, uh, government, yeah. talking about issues like um, race and uh, refugees, uh, talking about poverty. What would you say to church leaders about helping people to learn Je- learn Jesus' way when it comes to doing justice? Yeah, I don't know that I have anything to add to that conversation that Matt or you or anybody would not answer that much better than me. I think I got into justice through reading the Bible. You know, you just can't read the Bible, um, specifically the first three quarters of it, and come away and just think that Jesus is about feeling good in prayer, <laughs> you know? It's just so holistic, and Jesus obviously comes in that. Jesus actually says a lot less about justice in the technical term than the Hebrew prophets do, but he stands in that tradition, and he constantly affirms that tradition. And, I mean, obviously the, the way of Jesus or, the, or Christianity, whatever you want to call it, has gave shape to most of the best justice institutions in our world. We did a practice last summer on hospitality, and just doing the research on hospitality was it was one of the coolest moments for me. I'm not like a huge history nerd, but 
understanding that you know even the word hospital and hospice and all this come and all of this up until really recently was all run. I kind of knew that hospitals were started by Christians. I didn't realize that the hotel industry was started by Christians. It wasn't a hotel industry. It was Christians would take people in. Hostels, hospitality, like all of this was done by monastic communities for 1,500 years. I think the first you know, publicly owned hospital was like in 15 something or it was like really recently in the scheme of things. So there's just such a wonderful tradition and um, I think a big thing for us with the apprenticeship idea is it's really easy in the megachurch world that I come from to just have this kind of consumeristic, like, come to Jesus, hear about the, come to church, hear about the love of God, have these amazing emotional encounters, and then kind of just go back to your pretty normal suburban or whatever life. And Jesus will just mess with that to no end, you know? So, um, you know, a key part uh, for us is the marriage of kind of, one of the reasons we call them practices and not spiritual disciplines is because it enables us to name a wider array of practices from what would be traditionally called spiritual disciplines like Sabbaths, you know, fasting, prayer, silence and solitude with kind of evangelism, justice, hospitality. So we've kind of broken down those kind of outward acts into three practices of which we've only taught on one the next two or next year, but of basically hospitality, creating space for the gospel by eating and drinking with people, which is what Jesus did with kind of people that were not Torah observant Jews, preaching the gospel, and then demonstrating the gospel, which is everything from healing the sick to prophesying over people to feeding hungry people to doing systemic justice. And that's basically, if you look at Jesus' life, what did he do? He went around, he like ate with people that you're not supposed to eat with. He preached the gospel and taught his way, and he did acts of the kingdom of God in person, you know? So trying to bring that into kind of our model of what we're going for, you know? Well, well, I'm going to give you all a chance to ask questions in a moment while you kind of think of what you might like to ask. I just want to ask one last question, which was yeah. just as you, as you've come to Sydney for the second time, how would you sum up our cultural moment in a city? In Sydney? Yeah. Oh, man, I feel, I feel like that would not be wise um, <laughs> to channel my wannabe inner Mark Sayers, you know? Yeah, I hesitate to do that, you know? I think that's, that's a question I would love to hear you answer, honestly, you know? And there's a lot of similarities. You know, Portland is, the reason I love it is because I don't really live in America. I live in Portland, um, which is a different place. Uh, and uh, there's much more similarity between a Portland and a most of Australia or you know England or whatever, and just very secular, very progressive, very post-Christian. And um, yeah, I mean, I think really seems to be the moment. I would just applaud the fact that you're here in this room together. Um, just hearing about uh, the reputation for tribalism in your city and the church was that I did not know that. And um, you know, I think in any kind of a secular post-Christian environment there are way too few of us who follow Jesus to have tribes. You know, there are just way too few. And I get, like, theological conviction. I get all of that stuff. Um, but we have to be in this together. And we all know that consumeristic moving people from one church plant to the newer, cooler church plant is not going to do anything but manage decline in a city. And, you know, when you're in a healthy church plan, I'm guessing some of you are, it's deceptive because you think if our church is growing, the church in the city is growing, even when the reality is, you know, most church plants experience 70, 80 percent of the people are from other churches. And there's a place for that, not against that. I've been a part of that in my past. But all that to say, 
um, man, like we have to be in this together. So Portland actually has one of the most unified kind of city churches of any city I've ever been to, um, which is really weird because it, and actually there are more healthy churches I think in my city than almost any city I know of. So there's something about like, once you get to it where Sydney's at or Portland, that there's so, there is literally no cultural Christianity left in my city. All the cultural pressure is away from church and toward brunch. Um, like there's just none, you know what I mean? Like it's, I mean, there's hostility. So if you go to, you don't like drop, I go to church. Nobody's like, oh, good for you. So do I once in a while. It's like, like you're like, what are you, bigot too? You know, like it's, I mean, seriously, it's all very intense. So um, all that to say, it breeds healthy churches because like there's less of us in the city, but like if you're in it, you're in it to follow Jesus, you know, or you don't know what it is that you signed up for, <laughs> one of the two, you know. And uh, like really all the church unity stuff, which we've really come together around social justice and really come together around Alpha now. Um, and it all started just with friendship. I mean, literally maybe 13 years ago, myself and about, I don't know, a dozen other lead pastors just started hanging out. We started spending time together. We became really good friends. Uh, then we started getting our churches praying together for seven years. We did a week of prayer and fasting together for our city where like for seven days in a row, six nights in a row, we'd go to a different church in the city. We'd all pray together for a move of God. And the last day we'd go to symbolic places in the city and we'd all pray together, you know? So, and that just started with like having coffee with, you know, oh, my name's so-and-so, what's your name? Oh, great, like let's be friends, you know? And um, man, it's just been, I, I can't imagine another way now, you know? So all that to say, I just affirm the fact that you guys are in the same room. I should shut up and you guys should just hang out with each other, you know? And this is obviously a little bit too big of a venue for that. But, but we can start doing that now, actually. Through yes. Questions. So why don't we take some questions? So perhaps just if you want to raise your hand, I'll call out. And um, if I need to, I'll just kind of say I'll come back if I see a number of hands up at once. But let's get rolling. So any first questions? Perhaps just stand up, and if I need to, I'll repeat the question, but I think we're pretty good here with being able to hear in the space. So off you go. Personally or in your leadership? Uh, let's go yeah. I mean, I can only speak out of my personal experience. Um, some of the life-changing things for me have been just reading or exposure to the ideas of spiritual formation. Um, you know, again, prior to the Enlightenment or even more recently than that, theology, psychology, and philosophy were all together. They were not separated into later disciplines and two of them left to secularism. You read the early church fathers, they sound to me more like psychologists than like theologians half the time. And frankly, they're better at psychology than theology at times, you know? Or a lot of the medieval writers. I mean, you look at, I just read, if anybody's read Gerald May, who's a very successful PhD psychologist who's done work around St. John and Teresa of Avalia. And I mean, their insights were, I mean, he would argue that they were saying what Freud and Jung later got famous for f hundreds of years before with more precision than either of them said. 
they're just inner, they're, uh, their grasp of the inner workings of the soul is really profound. I mean, think in the Anglican tradition, I mean, you recall the cure of souls, or that, you know, and that word also means care and cure. It's kind of this, two, both of those words are translated from the Latin. The care and the cure of souls was the job of the pastor. It wasn't management. I was chatting to an older, my spiritual director, who's a retired pastor now, and he said, you know, pastors used to have a study, and now they have an office. And he said, and it just hit me. And he's like, used to go into like a smaller church, and there was a thing that said pastor's study. And he was usually in there like with books open, you know, and in prayer. And he was there to help you pray if you wanted. Now it says office because they're, they're there to lead an organization. I was like, St. Jerome in oh the study gosh, has a different yeah. kind of ring to it yes. than St. Jerome in the office. <laughs> exactly, 100%. Like, I want to study. I don't want an office. I want to study. Um, so all that to say, reading has been really helpful. Um, psychology as well as spiritual formation. I've found quite, uh, some of it's just nonsense, but some of it's really helpful. Um, therapy has been life-changing. Spiritual direction, the spiritual disciplines, in particular Sabbath and silence and solitude, we have just been, and fasting as well, li life in community has been incredible. Um, trying to think what else, emotionally healthy spirituality, if you've not read his stuff, you don't know about his podcast, that's one of my favorite podcasts, um, and they're all about, well, they used to be about 20 minutes long, they keep getting longer, um, but there's just gold if you want to listen. I think it's Emotionally Healthy Leadership, or Leader is the podcast. If you don't know, now you know, and it's fantastic. So, I mean, basically just, you know, what's the saying, the hardest person to lead is yourself, and unfortunately that's true. Um, just go on the journey yourself, you know, and let Jesus change you, and there's no, like, formula, like, you do these three things, and Two years later, you're like the second coming of Jesus, you know? <laughs> it doesn't, at least not in my experience, you know? But just dealing with my own stuff, you know? And, and I have learned more through just following Jesus very intentionally than I have through anything else, you know? And then you get to offer what you have. And it's such a good thing, isn't it, to hear from the front, get therapy, get help uh, as you need. It's so important for pastors yeah. to kind of deal with that stigma that we can so easily develop. Yeah. And you got to find the right therapist. I mean, like, yeah. I grew up in a church tradition where therapy is right up there with, like, secular music and Satanism, you know? It's like, <laughs> sure. same par, you know? And you can't recommend therapy anymore that you can recommend churches. You have right. to find a good one, but... Um, but the openness to talk about is so yeah. important. Yeah, I mean, we're new to Alpha. We're just huge fans of it right now. Um, I'm not an evangelist. You know, most church plants have an evangelist at the helm, which I actually think is right and fitting. Um, I'm much more of a teacher. And so that's been a great question for our church is how do you do an evangelism where, one, I'm not an evangelist, like in the sense of gifting, and two, you know, we're in this secular, very post-Christian context. People don't want to come to church. It doesn't matter what my sermon series is on or how cool the band is or how hot the worship leader is or whatever. It just doesn't, nobody freaking cares. Brunch is across the street and they have beer mosas, you know? Um, so uh, creating that space has been just life-changing for us. So, yeah, we're, I think, two years in. And um, it's not, we don't have, like, HDB Alpha where there's, like, you know, 800 people and half of them come to faith at the end. But it has been crazy because it creates space. Uh, if you're not familiar with Alpha, it's very simple. If there's a formula to it, like you have a meal, so we cook really good food, we practice hospitality, which is a huge value for us. 
and there's a 20-minute talk about Jesus, either on a video or in person. And then you get around a table, and um, you just anybody offers their perspective, and it's geared at people that aren't followers of Jesus. And um, the, my favorite thing about Alpha, when I first heard, I thought was just nonsense, was you know if you're there and you host the table conversation and you are a follower of Jesus, you're not allowed to answer any questions or correct anything, right? So correct me if I'm wrong here. You're not allowed. So somebody can say like, I think Jesus was the incarnation of the Earth Mother Goddess or whatever, and you're just like. <laughs> Man, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for your contribution to this conversation, you know? And um, it's so fun because, you know, in a secular culture, most people off of Twitter don't talk about the real things of life. Um, and so people just don't go there. They don't go to that soul level. So what a lot of people find in Alpha is they articulate what they believe for the first time, and they find themselves thinking, that's stupid, <laughs> or, or that's incoherent, or that doesn't make sense. But it's in this really, they experience hospitality, they experience the gospel, and it's charismatic. So this Holy Spirit stuff. So, um, I mean, we've had just, there's this one, there's this gal that was in our we office on the fourth floor of this old kind of warehouse, and it's a bunch of weird, like, yoga studios and just weird stuff, graphic designers and stuff in this building. And there was this masseuse um, down on the second floor who was, like, crazy into Hinduism, like, had crystals and would, like, you know, vibe positive energy into you. And, like, she got married at Burning Man and, like, like very, very, very far, like, all the stereotype of a Portland progressive hippie that you could possibly imagine. She comes on to Alpha, right? Because we just know her from kind of around the building. And there's a coffee shop in the bottom. You, you know, pass people in the hall. It's not that big of a building. Comes on to Alpha and, like, is just totally, like, about praying to crystals. And isn't anti-Jesus. It's just pro-everything, you know, kind of. And um, just has this encounter with Jesus. Goes on the Holy Spirit weekend. They have to perform an exorcism on her. Terrifies her. Like, there's a full-on, like, demonic manifestation. She's set free. Comes to faith in Jesus. Her husband comes to the next one. He comes to faith in Jesus. Now she's doing inner healing prayer as she's giving people massages or whatever. And people are coming. And she literally went from, like, praying to crystals to, like, and I'm just thinking, that is somebody that would never come listen to my sermon series on silence and solitude. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not in her paradigm. But it creates a space, and it's just hospitality, gospel, community, and Holy Spirit. I mean, if that's a formula, that's the most ancient formula there is. But for our church, it just works so good because it's just a third space. So that's a long answer. We just run it three times a year. We're still new to it. We don't have a great space for it. We just bought a church building, and we're remodeling it right now. And a key part of it is we're building a 50-foot table and this whole, like, hospitality center. Yeah, it's going to make kinfolk look lame. It's just going to be <laughs> so cool. So, um, yeah, we're remodeling now, and we're putting a kitchen in and kombucha on tap, and hopefully it'll... <laughs> Hopefully it'll be great. And an outdoor seating area we can use three weeks of the year. And, um, and so, yeah. So we're really, we're really excited about it. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. Um, hey, uh, Hi. I don't know. <laughs> Is he a Russian spy? That's the better question. Yeah, that's great. Um, my second question is, um, I am vocationally uh, a comedian. Um, that's, that's what I was doing earlier, full self-plug. I love it. Um, and um, I, I really like, I look up to someone like Ted Sarat. Oh, come on. Who's on a Bible sabbatical right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and after chapter one, he said, one joint down, five more to go. <laughs> That's one way to read Galatians. <laughs> Yeah. His language around women is horrendous his and what? his language around women is horrendous, yeah, all that stuff. I just love that you're asking the question. I have a lot of experience in how to be a comedian and a Christian. Um, no, I have absolutely none. I have no clue at all. Um, I just love that you're asking. Some questions are just the question is the answer, you know? So I would just say well done on that. Um, yeah, I honestly don't have any advice on how to be a comedian and a Christian other than, you know, obviously we all know comedians are basically the prophets to secular society. So some of them are just, you know, 12-year-olds that never grew up and have potty humor. But... You listen to many of them, even some like Louis C.K. that are disgraced now, and they are prophetic, and they're, in, they're, they're, cult, they're cultural commentators, they, and, and they have this bizarre ability to step outside of our culture and critique it in some sort of love. And, um, so, and I think we said the artists or the prophets of the, I actually don't think most people pay way more attention to comedians than they do to artists. How many people know even what famous artists' names are, but everybody knows who Trevor Noah is or whoever, you know? So I think, man, it's an amazing opportunity. Like, what Mark does so brilliantly is, you know, Philip Reef would say your job is to biopsy culture. And what he means by that is, like, you just cut out a little idea of culture, whether it be the idea around transgenderism right now. Just take an idea, pull it out of the crazy Twitter sphere or whatever, have, a, like, a rational thought experiment around it. Just cut it apart and just analyze it. You don't have to even judge it as right or wrong. Just like analyze this and, and start to notice where this came from, start to notice the assumptions that are built into this idea, and then start to question some of those assumptions. And most of the time, the lie reveals itself as a lie. And so, I mean, comedians, you get to do that better than pastors do. That's amazing, you know? And obviously, you know, much of comedy just pulls our culture down into dishonor, contempt, anger, you know, lust, lewdness. And so, obviously, to do it and still be funny without that, you have to be very intelligent. So um, I just say, well done. Keep asking the question, you know. Yes. Okay. 
I, I, I know what you're talking about. Yes. Yep, for all, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep, and not wait to do evangelism until you've got all of your stuff in a row. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. That's a great question. Again, I don't know what a, a short, simple answer to that is because it's so person-to-person and context-to-context. I think a big part of it that you see in the New Testament is going as community. I mean, Jesus was very intentional. You're sent out two by two in that example. And then later, everything's plural. Everything's you as you are going out. You know, he just assumes that you go out, whether it's the practice of evangelism or hospitality or justice, it's not just you. It's you in the community. And there's been 2,000 years of people wrestling with the tension between separation and mission you know what i mean and that's why there's, there's no like easy answer to that because that's a question we all ask every single day and there's obviously different church traditions such as the reformed tradition that has leaned more on cultural influence and the anabaptist tradition that has leaned more on separation and community you know and so there's different traditions and different perspectives and no easy answers to that you know so i think what we're wrestling with is just the main problem that we face pastorally and even personally in a secular city is whatever you want to call it, assimilation. You know, Mark's whole thing of first, which is Philip Reef, first culture, second culture, third culture, or pre-Christian, Christian or Christianized, and post-Christian culture. And Mark's analysis that, analysis that, you know, if you're coming from a Christian culture to a pre-Christian culture, say if you're a missionary from England coming to Aboriginal, you know, whatever that was, 200 and something years ago, then the danger is that you colonize the culture, that, you know, people end up singing songs in English by white men from London. But if you're coming, that's not the danger for any of us in this room, coming from a Christianized culture to a post-Christian city. Like the danger is not that like everybody in Sydney is gonna start singing Bethel music all the time, you know what I mean? And people are gonna start using cliches like the Lord bless your day all of the time, you know what I mean? And ending emails with like, God bless you. That's not the problem. The problem is the opposite, that we are colonized by the culture. And so that, just Mark's analysis there has been so helpful, rang so true to my experience. And that's the main, honestly, the main problem or one of the main problems we have right now at the church in Portland is just the culture's gravitational pull is overwhelming. You know, the New Testament concept of the world is almost entirely lost in millennials. You know, most of what millennials call culture, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament would call the world, or at least much of it. And there's almost no concept for that, you know? So um, that's, that's a really tricky thing. So all that to say, it's a non-answer for you. I just think it's a constant wrestle. And the, there's certain things like you're not supposed to resolve them, like the tension between Jesus teaching on money and living in a city like this. There's not an easy answer to that. And the moment that you're like, I got it, I'm good, I have no, like, if you don't read Jesus' teachings on money as any one of you in this room and get done reading Luke 11 or whatever and be like, dang, like, I just read his line the other day, like, sell your possessions and give to the poor. I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how many of my possessions? What do you mean? Can it be, like, a possession, you know? And it's like, you rest, like, there are certain questions that are themselves the guiding principle. And I don't think you're supposed to say, well, what it means is da-da-da-da-da. You're supposed to live the question. So I think to your question of that tension between assimilation of culture and, you know, whatever you want to call it, holiness, it's just you constantly ask that. 
I'm basically not answering your question. That's two twice in a row. I'm like, the questions, that's BS, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, over here. Hi. Uh, oh, it's a joy. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I mean, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive at all. You know, ambition, that word means different things to different people. And um, there is a, there's, a, there's a kind of holy ambition that is um, a sense of call would be the more Christian word. You know, like I feel called to do this, this sense of, you ever have things in your life where you feel like I have to do this? And it's not guilt or shame or drivenness. It's like a, a, you feel compelled, maybe it would be the New Testament word for it, compelled to do something. And man, I mean, look at Jesus. He was not like just sitting around, you know, reading poetry all day long. He was like doing a lot of really cool stuff. He also didn't have a wife and children, so you have to factor that in. Um, but I think you will not get very far into ambition and drivenness if your spiritual formation does not come before it. And, you know, you have to put your emotional health and spiritual formation first. Otherwise, all you'll do is kill it for a couple of years and then either burn out or just do damage to yourself and the people you lead, you know? So um, I think prioritize who you're becoming through abiding over what you're doing and let what you're doing flow out of that, you know? I, if you had met me 10 years ago, I was so driven, so ambitious. It was, uh, it was probably 30% Jesus call in my life and 70% I wanted to be really good at what I did, and I wanted to be successful, and I wanted a big church, and I wanted to be well-respected, and there was insecurity in me, and I was homeschooled for a long time and felt like an idiot and wanted to be cool and all this, all this stuff. And um, man, did it hurt me and did it hurt the people I led. And I just don't think Jesus was ambitious. I mean, he said abiding is the center of everything. So calling, work ethic, making your life count, getting up early, going for it, beautiful. I would just say... You know, it's like the whole thing, like, between grace and truth, err on the side of grace, you know? I think in the same way, between work and formation, err on the side of formation, and let your work come out of your rest. And I just find that I'm way more productive the more I rest. So it's ironic. Like, I don't feel like I'm less productive now than I used to be, but I work less hours than I've ever worked. Remember Andy Stanley, who's, like, leadership guru in America, years ago, was at this thing, we were church planning, and he said, you know, if you work more than 45 hours a week, you're bad at your job. I was like, you have a church of 30,000 people. There's no way that you work 45 hours a week. And that's like one of his life messages is you can't. And now as a dad, I can't work more than that. I have three kids. I can't be a good dad and work more than 45 hours a week and be a healthy person. And so, man, I, but I've come to actually agree with him. I'm like, man, there's, there's a time where you work. You work your butt off. You get off your phone. You do focus. And then you rest and you focus on your soul and you be in relationship. Great question, man. Go for it. It's a fantastic question. Um, yes. I want to know how do you measure if, as a pastor, that your church are relating this kind of discipleship? Because uh, it's so easy to, to know uh, if the how many people got saved in a yes, in a church. that's a measable but thing. Yeah, but how do you measure if uh, you are being effective? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm so happy you asked that. So I honestly think every pastor and every church has to ask that question, what are our metrics of success? And I don't even know what the right answer to that is, but you need to ask it. You know, I just kind of, in the megachurch tradition I came up with, I kind of, you know, joke that it's, I'm jet lagged now, so we'll see if I can remember all this, but butts, budget, buildings, and buzz. Like butts, how many people are there? Budget, how much money do they give? Building, what's, how cool is your, this is a cool venue, by the way. Um, and buzz, like whether that's measured by retweets or just by how people think you're doing or whatever. Those are kind of the metrics. And the nice thing about at least the first three are uber measurable. You can literally put them in an email from your executive pastor every Monday morning, you know, and chart yourself. And, and it's a horrible life. I remember my, my mentor once, who's this older South African, amazing guy, once said to me that, you know, Sunday is a cruel mistress. And what he meant is if you just live by those metrics Sunday to Sunday, oh, it, you'll ki- even if you kill it for a while, nobody kills it permanently. And, man, that will just destroy you. So all that to say, you have to ask that question. So um, with jet lag, I don't know. We, we came up with just a year ago with seven metrics of success. And then under each one of those metrics, we've come up with some measurables. It's, some of them are really tricky. How do you measure people going into love and joy and peace? You know, that's a much trickier one to measure. And it's much slower. You can, sh- uh, in our experience, you can grow services way faster than you can grow people under Christ likeness. I can't even do that. I can just help cultivate the soil, you know. So we came up with seven metrics, and it was like, you know, um, life with Jesus, intimacy with God. Are people experiencing year over year more of a life of prayer and a more of a sense of the presence of God with them? Are they becoming like Jesus, character formation? Are they discovering their identity and calling and doing the work that God's made them to do? Community, are they living in community around a table? Um, giving, are they giving not just financially to the church, but giving in the way of Jesus around money? And um, I think baptism was the first one or whatever. And that's another one I can't remember. And we just came up with these are our metrics of success and some measurables, whether that be like how many people come to Alpha, how many people are baptized, how many people are in home communities, how many people in those communities are practicing, are doing the practices that we're doing. And those, mes- those, me- those measurables don't necessarily tell an accurate picture of the story, but they at least they give our staff something to concretely work toward and to begin to define success differently from, not that we don't pay attention to how many people there on a Sunday and what the budget is, we care about that, but to define success differently. You can have a really small church that isn't bigger one year than the next and be a raging success, but you have to have a different metric system. You know? So all I would say is just come up with your metrics of success Figure out what's measurable. Know that most of the best stuff is really hard to measure, and and accept that. And just and but defining your mind, ten years from now, this is how we know if we were successful. But you can't define success by the American or the Western metrics. It just will destroy you, you know. Links so closely to the to the previous question about your know, ambition for what purpose? Yeah. How do you how do you do that in a sustainable way as a leader? We probably have time for one more question. So, take the question at the back. Oh, wow. You should ask an evangelist that question, you know, Matt or somebody like that. I'm not the right person to ask. I mean, what we're stumbling toward alpha, hospitality. I mean, in our experience in the Gospels, when Jesus was with Torah observant Jews who believed most of what he believed, he'd stand up in front of crowds and preach. When he was with tax collectors and prostitutes, he'd invite himself over to their house for dinner. And so that's kind of more our model, you know, of hospitality. Have we, recovering hospitality has honestly been key. 
And um, I, I honestly think spiritual formation is going to become a form of evangelism as the, the moral and social decay of the West. You know, we're really the first adult generation that's the byproduct of divorce. In my church, it's wreaking havoc. I mean, pretty much every person in our church has some form of father wound, mother wound, attachment disorder. And so more and more just healthy Christian people and families and marriages are going to be, like, bizarre in our culture. I mean, even, like, I have three kids. I got married at, you know, 21 years old, been married for 17 years. We're not a natural personality fit for each other. When our family goes anywhere in our city, we're like unicorns. People are like, you know, are you babysitting? Are you nannies for this or whatever, <laughs> you know? People are totally confused by it. And, and as our family has all sorts of issues. But just the fact that we're still married and still a family, that's like that. People are like, whoa, tell me more. Sabbath, like when people find out about our Sabbath practice, which is like so life-giving for our family, it is like, it's like basically evangelism. Oh, yeah, what are you doing today? Nothing. We're just eating a lot and our phones are off and people just look at you with like desire in their eyes, you know? <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's, the Peter, that's the Peter form of evangelism. In exile, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify your father. And social justice is, is really one of the key ways where we can both do justice, which we would do anyway, as a form of apologetic. So I think it's, it's all basic stuff, like hospitality, formation, social justice, life in community, Sabbath, living contrary to the workaholism ambition of our society, manifestos against digital addiction by spiritual disciplines to mitigate against iPhone nonsense, you know? Like, just, it's basic stuff. That's the beautiful thing about, like, if there's some, we all want a killer app. You know what I mean? We all like, what's the silver bullet? Like, how do you just have everybody in your secular city come to faith and have no problems and everybody's Christ-like in three years? What's the program, you know? It just doesn't exist. There's no, if there was a killer app, somebody would have patented it by now and be wicked rich, you know? But I just don't think. These are just, it's just, it's, and when it comes back to the basics, you know? I love that question. Oh, I want to invite Pastor Matt Sparks to come up. How good has tonight been? It's just been fantastic. Thank you, Kate, so much for what you do. It's really a joy to be with you guys. Thank you. Well, um, I just want to take a quick moment. We're going to ask John Mark to pray for us in a second, so don't go anywhere. Um, but to honor those of you who are leaders, pastors, small group leaders in this room, we want to honor what you do in helping people see what the life of Jesus looks like. So thank you for what you do, and we want to encourage you to keep doing it. And for those of you who are tired and are feeling at the edge of your tether, um, we would love to pray for you. So if, if there's anyone here tonight who feels like, I think I'm done, I just heard that and I'm not sure I can continue, um, don't leave here without being prayed for. So, But we, we would love, John Mark, to pray for us now to bless what is a unique gathering of churches across our city. And uh, let's, let's keep working together to lift up the name of Jesus because our city needs Jesus. So. Um, would you pray for us, bro, and, yeah, and just bless an this honor. amazing group of Would you people? stand with me? Um, if you're as sweaty as I am, you're pretty miserable. Um, would you stand and, uh, you know, if you want to just posture your hands out in front of you, palms up, you don't need to, but just as a way with your body praying to God and saying that you're here to receive. The posture of a child with hands open for food. May you take up the easy yoke of Jesus. 
May you move from tiredness and exhaustion, burn out on religion. May you find rest for your souls. May you live out of a ambition, not abiding, out of unity, not division, out of conviction and not compromise out of love and not competition and envy and rivalry, out of joy and not out of cynicism or contempt or tall poppy syndrome or melancholy. And may you live out of peace deep in your soul, not out of anxiety or stress or chaos and confusion. May the Spirit of God animate you with his life. May above all you live a life of prayer, a life of intimacy with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. May God bless you with his life. May he flow, may he unlock a new season of blessing in the church in Sydney and around your country. And may that life and blessing produce more life and blessing in the communities you lead, the neighborhoods you inhabit, the city you call home, and the world that we share. Commit you to the Father. <laughs>